Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today, we're talking to Carla Schmidt, who not only is a colleague of mine, but also a dear friend. As a certified nutritionist and Nordic Naturals educator, Carla has had a lifelong passion for nutrition and wellness education. During her over 25 years in the field, she has worked as a researcher, writer, dietary supplement specialist, and private nutrition consultant. Carla is a gifted public speaker who regularly lectures to both professional and consumer audiences on the topics of health and wellness. In this episode, Carla and I will discuss the connection between your gut health and your immune system, your brain health and mood, and how a healthy gut can play a role in weight management and even weight loss. We also discuss how to detect if you have some gut issues and what that can potentially lead to, which probiotic foods may not be that healthy for your gut, and most importantly, the top things you can do to support your gut health. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. Carla is my go-to gut health expert when I'm stumped or need a second opinion. And I will tell you that if your gut ain't right, nothing's right. Carla is going to give you tangible protocols on how to feed your gut so you can start to feel and see the benefits it can provide. Your gut really is the window to your health. This is such important information because it may just be that if you pay more attention to your gut and what it's telling you, you can prevent some serious health issues down the road. Carla, welcome. I am so happy to have you on. We, you know, we were just talking about how, you know, yes, gut health is so important and it's gotten a lot of press recently in the news, but also maybe some misunderstood press. So I'm so happy to have you on today and to share your expertise. This is your specialty, your time to shine. Um, and I'm just really grateful to have you on today. Thank you so much. I have been really looking forward to this. And you're so right, Kate, the misinformation and people never actually succeeding fully is something people experience really often in trying to heal their guts. Oh yeah. And I'm sure we will get into that. You know, all the issues that you should pay attention to that can warn you that you may have some gut issues, what you can do, but let's just start with why should we even pay attention to the health of our guts and just why is it important? Okay. So I've been thinking about this question because I figured it would come up, uh, understandably. And I thought I'd take you on a little kind of timeline explanation journey because previously, decades ago, it was thought that our guts were a fairly simple system and all they were intended to do was digest food, absorb nutrients. But What's really interesting is that over 2000 years ago, Hippocrates, you know, the father of medicine, he actually stated that the gut is the root to all illness. But the narrative has changed. And I would say within the last 10 to 15 years, especially, because that's when a tremendous amount of research really kicked up. And so the narrative now is that the gut is the root of all our health. And when Love we it. about that, right? <laughs> All encompassing, help me understand this. But we need to think of our guts as its own ecosystem. I mean, it is full of microorganisms and bacteria. There's over 38 trillion, 
and that number seems to change depending upon what you're reading, um, microorganisms that live in what we call our microbiome. But they act like an organ. They actually have interaction with other body systems and organs. They actually produce vitamins. They help produce and regulate hormones. I mean, it's endless what our gut system is responsible for. So because of that, the reason it's so important is that it also influences these other body systems and can play a role in condition states. And we're gonna talk, I know, probably about some other areas like brain and immune system and weight management. But if we think of our guts as this barrier that allows us to keep the good bacteria available to create great health, but keep those harmful guys out, it's a huge role. Okay. Yeah, no. What you're looking for. I mean, you did a great job of putting it simply in a way too. And I love the little timeline you took us on because we know our guts are not so simple, right? Um, and I do want to first dive into, especially with everything that is going on in the world today, the connection between our gut health and our immune system, because it's something that I actually wish got more press during these COVID times. Um, and there has been some, but I do wish people had paid it a bit more attention to it because I think it's so powerful. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I can land first off with a percentage, and that is that 70 to 80% of your immune system takes place in your gut. I mean, like pause for a moment, take that in, right? 70 to 80%. So, um, and to reword it a little bit, 70 to 80% of your immune cells reside within that lining of your gut. So how can we ignore that fact when it comes to what good bacteria can do with respect to keeping those immune cells ready to target pathogens, viruses, harmful microbes? But conversely, if you're out of balance, you know, I gather we'll get to dysbiosis when you've got too many harmful versus good, um, then your immune cells' ability to do their important targeting gets diminished and jeopardized. And whether or not you want to go down that path of leaky gut and increased permeability, that leads to a whole nother subset of immune health and autoimmune condition states that occur as the result of someone's gut lining, which is our barrier to everything being really compromised. Yeah. You know what, Kara, while, while we're on it, let's go, let's go down that road. And, um, if there's one thing just hitting our immune system before we go down that road that you think people could do on a daily basis to increase their immunity through their gut health, is there one thing or a few things I know we'll, we'll talk about more, especially at the end, because I really want to give people tangible things they can start doing today. Um, but in terms of immunity, is there anything in particular that pertains to their gut health? Well, you, you, in order to improve your immune cells activity and response within the gut, there's a lot of different tips, but just to name a few, your diet greatly impacts how your gut and therefore immune system and whether or not you have that diversity 
of those different types of bacteria. So a lot of peoples are minimized by the fact that they eat the same thing every single day, right? Or their diet's really poor, high in sugar, perhaps it's really high in processed foods, not high enough in fibers or soluble fibers that are rich in prebiotics that are actually the food to feed that healthy probiotic growth. Um, there is quite a bit of research, of course, on vitamin D's role with immunity, also important within its residing and activity within the gut. So that's like a whole nother topic that we could go down, including fermented foods in your diet. And maybe we'll break these out further, but there's many. Or supplementation with probiotics to support the health of the gut and your immune cells capabilities. I love that. Yeah. And we'll definitely dive into each of those more. One thing I want to point out that you said that I think is really important education, especially for people that think, you know, well, I have a healthy diet. I shouldn't have to worry about it. Carla said, if you eat the same things every day, now I know a lot of people who are very routine, maybe have the same breakfast, a very similar lunch, or they have their, you know, they're eating a salad, but they have their favorite salad with the same exact toppings every day. You really want to make sure what Carla really honed in on is to get diversity in your gut bacteria, you need diversity in your foods, right? Diversity in those fibers too, that food for those probiotics and that good bacteria. So really taking a look to it, you know, you are eating healthy foods and you feel like you have a healthy diet, just paying attention to changing it up every so often. So if you're like a routine, I mean, I'm a routine egg person for breakfast. I love them, but I also try to mix it up with a smoothie sometimes or oatmeal and add, you know, some chia seeds, but just to mix things up and add some berries to it um, is really important to us. Even, you know, if you love your salad for one of your meals, change up the vegetables vegetables. You know, we're creatures of habit. We go to the grocery store. Sometimes we're on autopilot and we're just picking the same vegetables each time. Um, maybe try going to your farmer's market and picking up some new vegetables that you've never tried, yes. but just making sure that you're not having the same things every day. Um, so let's go down that rabbit hole, if you will, Carla, of um, dysbiosis and basically if you're and what that is. Sure. So dysbiosis in simple terms is when there is imbalance in the gut. Um, a lot of people still use the simplest of terms, good bacteria versus bad. I like to use friendly versus harmful, but either way you look at it, it's out of balance. And there's a lot of different causes for this, by the way, genetics being one. I mean, there are groups and populations of people that struggle with gut issues and if they look at their line of family, they're going to find that. That's one. Diet, another. Really big. Stress, lack of exercise. Perhaps they contracted an illness at some point in time, which really seemed to land in the gut and cause issue and tear down and imbalance of that microbiome. And prescription medications, of course, also disrupt. And alcohol. Um, so there are a lot of compounds in the standard American diet that, you know, in most instances, a lot of people are lucky. 
but there are those that struggle terribly. And so when we think about what this dysbiosis leads to, Kate, that's the biggie. If there is this continual imbalance in the body, then it can lead to conditioned states of the gut, which therefore then impact other body systems like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, that would be that big umbrella, right? Over or medically based um, conditions like colitis, ulcerative colitis, or um, Crohn's. These are things that when someone reaches that status in terms of a condition, they struggle endlessly. It's like being in a prison. And until someone can really help you take that garden, pull out the the old dead weeds, calm it all down, replant that population. Um, they really have such a hard time and can struggle for years with this dysbiosis. And what would be, Carla, if, you know, because a lot of the times, especially if maybe, you know, you're not educated on some of these conditions and how they would make you feel, what would be some of those warning signs that your gut is screaming like, hey, I'm out of whack. I need some help and I need to be put back in balance. Um, are you okay if I take you like mild symptoms versus more severe? Yes. I love it. Give it, get, yeah. Give them all to me. Okay. So <laughs> mild symptoms would be obviously burping after a meal. So that may be a little bit more digestive enzyme related at that point. How well are you breaking down your foods? But the most common mild symptoms would be bloating after a meal. A lot of people think that's normal. That is not a normal response to consuming food and breaking it down and absorbing it. Or obviously having gas after a meal, feeling um, discomfort, uh, especially along kind of the left side of that intestinal end colon, kind of an irritated feeling. And then someone who's struggling with this on a more regular basis, they're going to have either constipation, diarrhea, they're going to perhaps have other things showing up in their stool that are really suspect and concerning mucus formation, blood formation. It depends how far down the path they are with what they're struggling with. So Got it. Yeah. on occasion, we all get bloating, gas, a little belching, but if this is happening on a really regular basis, there's some disruption going on and, we, and it'd be great if we could balance it again. Yeah. So if it starts becoming persistent or you're noticing it more often, and I think another important point too is, so my dad, for example, he has rheumatoid arthritis Uh and I'm a firm believer that it started with leaky gut, but he's a, you know, when he got his diagnosis, he's just looking at, well, I have rheumatoid arthritis. So what can I do? I'm looking at it as, well, how can we also heal your gut? So can we talk about some of the conditions that if you leave those persistent warning signs unnoticed, Mm -hmm. some of the other conditions it can lead to? Absolutely. So when dysbiosis is taking place over an extended, more chronic period of time, What happens, and you just referred to leaky gut, which what I love is years ago, the doctors, many medical Western conventional docs poo-pooed it. And now the science is so solid. Of course, that's kind of the slang term. The medical term is called increased intestinal permeability. 
So if you don't mind, I'm just going to give you a little understanding of that before we go into what conditions may be happening A or B. So this barrier that we have along our intestinal, I don't know if you can see my hands, track, it definitely has some little cracks in it because nutrients, right, come in and go out. So you need to be able to have this transfer of nutrients. But when a person's microbiome becomes jeopardized, or perhaps they've had a foreign invader in the body, inflammation occurs. That's the body's natural reaction, right? As a response, the immune system says, I'm gonna inflame so that I can alert all the other immune cells to do their job. But this inflammation becomes chronic and it creates more gaps in this barrier that's supposed to only let the, the good in and out and keep the harmful from going into our bloodstream. So that's called leaky gut. So what ends up happening are these foreign bodies large protein bodies, other harmful microbes are allowed to cross into the bloodstream. And this is where we start to talk about how it affects our health outside of the gut. But think root, root, it happens here first. These larger bodies are allowed to go out into the bloodstream. Our immune system attacks them because they're not meant to be there. Hence, our body's almost attacking itself. This can lead to autoimmune condition states, rheumatoid arthritis being one within that category. Other gut issues like irritable bowel, Crohn's, colitis, MS. I mean, there's a, a slew. And looking at the gut first as you're learning why is vital to that. There's also been studies to show that uh, blood sugar regulation can also be very affected by what's going on in that gut and its diversity or lack thereof. Mood, mental wellness, and really cool information on weight regulation and management of body weight. So hopefully that gave you just some insights into that. Yeah, no, that's, um, it's very insightful. And I'm glad to Carl, and I love how you explained leaky gut because I think more people have it than they realize. And like I said, they're maybe getting a diagnosis down the road. That's not leaky gut, but the root cause was there and they're not focusing on really healing their gut. So it's important to, to advocate for yourself when you're at your doctor's, if you're listening to this and you know, you may have something we talked about, um, just to bring it up to your doctor and see if, your gut health may have played a role. Most likely it did because like we've talked about, it touches so many different um, aspects of our health and yeah. parts of our body, which I do want to dive in. Um, mood is one of them that you just touched on and weight management, but let's start um, with mood and the brain. What are the benefits of you know having a healthy microbiome, right? Or a healthy balance of bacteria in our gut and um, our brain and mood? This is like probably one of the most fascinating areas of the study of the microbiome. So our gut and our brains communicate with each other. I'm sure at this point, most people have heard of the gut-brain access at this point in time in some literature on a podcast, but it's this bi-directional communication that takes place. And this is a huge discovery. And what is discovered is that certain chemical messengers, many of them, but the most prolific one being serotonin, which is our feel good, happy, 
chemical signaler hormone, 90% of it is produced in our gut. And what's very fascinating is that the study of how these two communicate with each other with respect to serotonin shows that if the brain has an abundance, because you know, it doesn't actually cross from the gut into the blood-brain barrier, it's just communicating, but really it's almost like a leveling system. So if the gut has a prolific healthy amount, it may actually pull down on some of its production so the brain can produce more. It's a very delicate little signaling system. But the reverse is true. So if you think of, I'm sure you've had butterflies in your stomach at some point in time, maybe before you were such a pro at all this podcasting and videotaping. So that's the brain centers that kind of work on our anxiety and our fear, sending signals along that vagus nerve, that axis, into the gut, hence butterflies. So the gut produces these signalers. It regulates them. And it also communicates with the brain on its production and regulation. That's just one example. So if you're out of balance in your gut and you are a person who struggles with mental wellness, this is a very important place to look at because a lot of people take medications for depression and other condition states that are known as SSRIs. They're called selective serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors. So that is altering how their cells and that synapse that takes place when we send a message and receive, those, those drugs keep the message in there longer. But if that's staying there longer, then it is going to impact how much you actually produce. And if you're not a good producer, take a look at the gut first and get it healthy. And you may who knows, be able to pull down on meds. Or of course, this is all with your practitioner who's monitoring your uh, situation and your health. I love that. And yeah. And you know what I always try to promote with clients too, if they are having um, some mood issues or disturbances is, you know, would, would you rather be at a point where you have to maybe take an SSRI or medication, which sometimes it is needed, right? Or would you rather eat your way to maybe a better mood? Oh. You know, trying to trying to think of that, you know, that trade-off too of taking, you know, a medication, which again sometimes is needed. Or let's try and focus on we're talking about like those probiotic rich foods, fermented foods, but then also a diversity um in fiber from vegetables and grains and things like that. So I'm so glad we touched on that. And the other aspect of your gut health that is definitely more new and still needs some more research, but some of the research done is very compelling. And especially with a new year, you know, a lot of people are, whether they're trying to lose weight, maintain their weight, you know, I've seen so many people on these crazy detox diets and doing so many actually unhealthy things for their gut and not realizing that there's a connection to good gut health and weight management. So could you touch a little bit more? on that. And I have some studies here, Carla, if you want to discuss them, but. Oh, thank you. Well, we can definitely dive into that. Um, and I'll, I'll just give you a little overview first. And you're right. It is newer science. And I'm sure you know this, Kate, but a lot of the 
interest in studying the microbiome over the last 10 to 15 years was initiated by the discovery of how the bacteria within our guts may in fact regulate how our system experiences weight. So what they found is that there are certain bacteria in the gut that regulate how our foods are utilized upon consumption. So we're talking energy use, right? Everybody's heard calories in, calories out, and we can reframe it with respect to the gut a little bit more. How well does our gut microflora help us take our foods, turn them into energy? Is it more efficient at storing or is it more efficient at utilization and allowing that energy to be used? So, and I'm sure you'll probably touch on one study, but this was found via animal and humans by doing some really interesting corrective experiments and surgeries to help other people's guts. But it's important to know that the growing evidence in the research is showing that by supplementing, and that's where the strong research is lying, by supplementing with prebiotics, which are, remember, the food for those probiotics, along with probiotics, that we can support a healthy weight in individuals who, as you know, in practice, struggle. You know, you can get somebody on 500 calories a day and they never lose weight. Why? Why is that happening to that person? Let's look at their guts. Let's see what's there, what isn't there. Yeah, no, and that's that's exactly, you know, what I wanted to touch on in some of the studies I have here is just really showing the combination between probiotics and prebiotics, which we will talk about. Everyone, don't worry. We'll talk about the what those foods are um, and other forms of supplementation. But the combination of prebiotics and probiotics have been shown and found to promote, you know, significant weight loss, better body composition. And one study in particular that I found was so interesting as well was they found that the combination of prebiotics and probiotics increase people's leptin levels. Uh-huh. So your leptin, your leptin is your satiety hormone. It's the hormone that's going to tell you when you're full. So some people do, and you know, it is a condition of overeating right? Or feeling like you're never full or satisfied when our hormones are out of whack and our ghrelin hormone, which is our hunger hormone, sometimes that can be way more elevated than our satiety hormone, which we want more to be in balance. Uh This can be one of the things is helping your gut, your good gut bacteria and bringing that, you know, that good balance to your microbiome can really help if you find you do have um, overeating issues, or you find that you're just constantly hungry. You can't, you know, that hunger hormones, not turning off your body's not telling you you're full. So I found that really interesting because there hasn't been too much research on, um, ways to help people figure out how to decrease their hunger hormone and increase their leptin hormone to again, get to that balance that we want. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so many good things in terms of weight management, but what I love again, too, is, you know, you use the example Carla, of like, you know, someone's on a 500 calorie diet, which is ridiculous, right? You know, really, yeah, never want to be on a 500 calorie diet, but the point was that just you're on such a low calorie diet or you're on a diet in general and 
things aren't moving the way you want them to. What I love about, you know, we call it feeding your gut. Again, to my point from before is we want you to eat. We want you to eat these good foods. We don't want to take things away, which again, with the new year, we hear so many diets and it's taking things away, which can also, you know, create some of those mood disturbances and make you not feel as happy. Um, but this is all about feeding your gut and giving you more. And that's why I was also just so excited for this podcast. But let's talk about now, Carla, what are some of those prebiotic foods and probiotic foods um, or other ways that you can get them in your diet? Okay. And I just need to say, I love that you're really focusing on feeding not only the microbiome, but that feeds your overall health since we're kind of leaning toward that being the root of our health, right? So I just want to kind of add that. So there are many ways that you can increase the diversity of your microbiome flora. You mentioned fermented foods. So fermented foods are naturally rich in probiotic bacteria. The one most people are familiar with is yogurt. Uh, you know, a milk-based supplier of these bacteria. I will say, however, for my experience and practice, that is not normally my first go-to if someone wants to do a fermented food, because a lot of people that struggle with their guts may have milk or dairy allergies and sugar issues, because sugar is a lovely food also for harmful bacteria. So I'm, that's not my first go-to because it tends to be high. Even the unflavored yogurt can have up to in eight ounces. It could have as much as 12 grams of sugar. But again, it depends on the severity. Occasional yogurt may be your go-to. Someone who's struggling chronically, if you're working with a practitioner who uh, really understands how to help improve and heal your gut, they'll likely pull that out. Other options are though, kefir, kimchi, and the all popular kombucha, which you see even in like gas stations now. <laughs> so it's readily available. It's a, a fermented tea that's been around for thousands of years, very rich in live bacterial cultures. I do have one little caveat, however, that I like to point out on kombucha. Because um, every time I sit down to do trainings with many of the people that work in retail health food stores, everybody has a kombucha in front of them. And so my, my point of this is, is you can also overpopulate your gut with too much friendly bacteria. So if you are experiencing some of those symptoms we talked about earlier, not fun ones, maybe you want to pull back on that a little, but it is very rich in probiotics. And then the prebiotic conversation that diet diversity is key. And you've touched on this beautifully, but just to reiterate, what are foods that are naturally rich in soluble fiber that are naturally rich in prebiotic? That is uh, vegetables such as leeks and artichokes and asparagus, even cucumbers, tomatoes, which are really more a fruit, um, a, things such as cabbage, category of foods. And then in the fruits, we're talking apples and blueberries, I know you mentioned earlier. And then if we're looking into the fiber side, you've got um, 
chia, flax, hemp, quinoa, they're all rich. And that's why you want to diversify your diet. You don't want to throw the same food at it all the time. You want these sprinkled throughout the week. And then lastly is, of course, and I think you asked, supplementing. If you can always purchase, and I always direct people to please choose a brand and a known manufacturer that is trusted, does the research, has clinical evidence to support the strains and the quantity of activity each strain is providing, high quality is key. That's a really great, easy, compliant way um, to support having that diversification available all the time. Yeah. And would you want, Carla, if you're looking at, let's say a probiotic supplement, would you want to make sure that prebiotic fiber is in there? Yes, I would. I like the synergism of the two in a formula. It won't be generally as high in terms of its milligram activity as the probiotics, because that's the focus, but it's, it's just giving more fodder to the bacteria to do their thing and allowing population. So let's say even if you're taking a probiotic, still try and eat your prebiotic-rich foods because they're also good for other things as well. Um, One note, Goose, we were talking about kombucha that I always like to bring up, though, is the sugar content. So there are a variety of kombuchas on the market. Um, Some are very low in sugar, some even um, about four grams per serving per bottle, which is okay. But then there are some that can be up to 18 grams of sugar, actually even 24 per bottle. Because if you see a lot of the times there's one very popular brand, I'm not going to, you know, blow them out and and (laughs) call them out here, but, um, they have 12 grams of sugar per serving and they have two servings per bottle. So it tricks you, but if you do see anything really above eight grams of sugar per what you're going to consume. If you're just going to consume half the bottle and save half for another day, okay. Um, But if there's more than eight grams of sugar per serving, it almost defeats the purpose to have a sugary kombucha to help your gut bacteria. Because like we were saying, increased sugar in your diet brings that dysbiosis and makes it out of whack too. So if you're going to have kombucha, just please pay attention to the sugar content. Luckily, there are so many brands out there now. There are so many flavors that I promise you the low sugar ones are just as delicious. You may actually even like them better. I know I personally, I do because it tastes more like a kombucha versus a sweeter kombucha, which sometimes can be a little bit too powerful. So just wanted to make that note there. Um, but I wanted to ask you too, Carly, you know, we talked about what you would do to get in more probiotics and prebiotics in your diet, but I know from your practice, you've worked with people who have had really serious gut issues and I know protocols I'm sure were different for each person, but could you talk a little bit about some of the protocols you would put people on if they came to you with, um, you know, a more serious gut issue? Okay, thank you for kind of narrowing it down. Because like you said, everyone's issues are unique. And you um, and a practitioner should always address it from that standpoint. There is no cookie cutter protocol, especially for gut issues. So yes, sadly, 
Um, I have worked with many people whose guts have basically imprisoned, I hate to say it, but imprisoned their lives for years and years. And just to add, one of the main reasons I'm so passionate about this subject is I was one of those people. Um, I myself had ulcerative colitis and struggled for a very long, long time uh, and started digging into the research because at that time I was not able to find someone well-versed, found a type of eating protocol that worked just naturally because I knew that um, in paying attention to suspect foods, I was able to eliminate those that really bothered me. And the funny thing is, is it mirrored uh, a protocol diet that is often used now and I often prescribe to uh, and use as a protocol. So long story short, if there's someone who's having severe gut issues, you can't really start throwing things at them dietarily, in my opinion. This is only, you know, anecdotal practice base. Um, you can't throw a lot of probiotics at them immediately. You can't ask them to start changing up their diet if they're already struggling with raw foods and vegetables. Because if their gut is so inflamed that anything you put in, regardless of how healthy it is for you, creates a reaction, you have to first, step one, calm it down. And so the good and the bad of this is that they must go on a very restrictive eating plan in order to calm it down. And so one that you're familiar with, Kate, I'm sure, is the low FODMAP diet. And that actually is the one that, as I started my own checklist, aligned with, because all of the foods that FODMAP asked people to stay away from and avoid was on my checklist of I can't do these unless I got fully healed. So FODMAP stands for um, fermented oligo dye and monosaccharides and polyols. In a simpler way, fermented carbohydrates and sugars. Individuals that are in a constantly chronic inflamed state with this dysbiosis, if they're to consume, let's say, an apple with skin or broccoli or cabbage or garlic or certain fruits that have a heavy skin that needs to be broken down, or another big category being those of thickening agents like carrageenan, uh, guar gums, indolin, known as chicory root. FODMAP eliminates all these because those stay in the gut longer. So they're able to produce more bacteria that makes it more uncomfortable in an inflamed state. So that's my first go-to if someone's willing to do it. <laughs> it's like, beg, please do this <laughs> because it's not for a week. Um, the thing I always tell patients at the beginning of this journey is, look, right now you're going to have to trust that I, I'm going to get you there, and it's not going to be immediate. I generally like to put people on a, a FODMAP, low FODMAP plan for anywhere from two to three months to really fully heal or whatever they'll give me in terms of their compliance. Uh, the other diet that is also popular for this purpose is the elimination diet. And that's really a little more intended to determine what the suspect uh, food intolerances, sensitivities, and allergies are. You rotate out for a period of time, and then you rotate back in. Um, that also can work for someone with a milder case. 
But if it's severe, we got to get that healed. Then we start diversifying the diet, adding in the probiotics, foods, you know, gradually to see the reaction. And I'd say the most rewarding, and this is not about me, but the most rewarding experiences I've had in my career have been people who have called a year, two years later to say, do you know that I am able to eat other things now and my gut and its issues are no longer dictating my life? So that is the extreme. I'm getting a little (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I love that Carla. And, um, for myself as well, that is going on a low FODMAP diet, depending on people's symptoms, yes. um, is usually a first line of protocol. But what I always try and tell people, because I think there's a misunderstanding, low FODMAP has become more popular. And I've also seen some doctors put patients on them when they really don't need to be. And it's not, they don't have the symptoms for it, but is that it's not to say that when you, so there's a whole host of foods you end up eliminating for a period of time Yes, for everyone who's listening. And that can be really scary, especially because on that list of foods are like some fruits and vegetables that you may love and, you know, are, are healthy foods for you. So it can be a little bit scary and overwhelming, but it's not saying you have to eliminate them forever. Correct. Yes, if you have a food allergy or you realize you have a very high sensitivity, but just like Carla said, it's more about calming your system down and healing that gut a bit. So then you can add those foods back in little by little and you will find your tolerances with them. You know, there may be certain foods that you can't, you still can't have a lot of, but you can, you can have a little bit, or, you know, I'll find a lot of times with clients, just how you prepare them. So a lot of people can have issues with Brussels sprouts or broccoli or cauliflower. And they found that if you actually, if you steam those foods before you cook them, you release a lot of the gases that can cause issues in your digestive system. So there's also maybe other ways you can have it. But I always like to tell people, you know, if you are having some gut issues and you're working, which I recommend working with dietitian, nutritionist, or a doctor, um, if you are on the low FODMAP protocol, is it's not to say you will never have those foods again, but you really do want to try to eliminate it to heal your gut. And then you can introduce them back in. But I agree with you, Carla. I think some of my most satisfying, um, success stories from clients are the clients that, you know, came in and they're like, I feel like I'm six months pregnant because they're so bloated. Yeah. And by the end, they're like, I didn't even realize how much this was affecting my life. Or even we talked about mood earlier. I've had so many clients where their mood has completely changed by the end. So uh, I'm just so glad you shared that. And this is not to say anyone listening that you should put yourself on your own low FODMAP protocol, because again, if you don't have certain symptoms, it's not the right protocol for you. But just to have a good understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so one other thing I wanted to touch on, Carla, was, you know, in terms of supplementation, we talked about probiotics, prebiotics, um, digestive enzymes we haven't really dove into, but how would you know which supplement is appropriate for you or that you should be taking for certain issues? Like when would you take a digestive enzyme? 
Yeah, this is not the easiest <laughs> question, as I'm sure you know. Um, so, if someone is in the extreme case that we were describing, I would not consider a digestive enzyme because I don't want more activity in their gut. I want to pull it back, get it quiet, right? Um, some of the more common symptoms that I would plug in digestive enzyme perhaps first is someone who may be getting immediately bloated after eating, kind of heartburn, indigestion, belching, or perhaps flatulence could be a sign that the foods that they are trying to break down are not getting broken down into the small enough particles that are needed. Um, and I usually like to kind of do a broad spectrum enzyme that has um, enzymes that break down fats, carbohydrates, as well as proteins and some milk solids as well. So it's, oftentimes it's a little bit of a guessing game in the beginning if you're not getting some diagnostic tests that can determine your digestive enzyme capability and activity levels. So if you're doing it based on symptoms, you can start with a digestive enzyme and a probiotic at the same time. But if we're talking about a patient or client that has mental wellness issues, maybe some of these other condition states that we've been referring to, I know that we need to shift their microbiome in order to help all that they're struggling with. So it's not exclusively digestion and absorption. That's kind of how I separate them. Yeah, no, I like that. And then what about for... For anyone listening, that's like, my gut feels great. Like I don't, you know, I feel like my diet's healthy. Would they, would it be beneficial for them to take a probiotic? Yeah, I would. Absolutely. I generally put a probiotic into everyone's daily protocol. <laughs> you too. Yeah, yeah. me too. <laughs> it's reassurance. Uh, let's say you're traveling and suddenly you're, uh, in subject to a whole different type of bacterial base in the foods or the environment, uh, flying. But it's unlikely that most Americans are getting enough diversity in their guts. And for all the reasons we mentioned, the foods that they're not eating on a regular basis or rotating in and out. So yeah, I love it um, as a daily. Doesn't yeah. And I love it more as like the, like the, prevention aspect versus, you know, we were actually just talking about this on one of our last episodes, rather than getting, you know, an illness or not feeling good and then going on something, it's like, no, we need to just constantly support. So even when you're feeling good, you still need to support your body. So it continues to feel good. Um, and that we're not, you know, just getting to the point where we're just reacting to when our body is screaming at us and telling us that it needs some help. Yeah. Um, yeah. Supporting it in advance. Right. And that, yeah. goes that whole, the gut is the root to your health. So why would you not want to support that and feed it right and supplement it if you're not feeding it right? Yeah. Okay. Carla. So I think this will be my last question because I know we can get off on tangents, which are great. And I've loved every minute of it, but what are the top three things you would say 
and you could include more than three, um, <laughs> that people could start doing today to support their gut health. Okay. You're right. I cannot <laughs> do three. But if I had to pick my top, top three, and then I'll add a little extras diet, as we've hit on several times throughout this conversation, diversification, inclusion of foods that are rich in soluble fibers, so you're getting those prebiotics, varying your diet, perhaps adding in fermented foods. So if I can count that as one, because <laughs> they're all diet That's one. Yeah. And within the diet, darn, darn, pull that sugar out and processed foods out. So that's one. Two would be exercise that may not be in everybody's top category, but the impact on your circulatory system, your lymphatic system and its ability to clear out toxins, harmful chemicals, impact on mood, immunity. It impacts everybody's system in an improvement level. And so I'm a big proponent of that. Does it uh, matter, Carla, what type of exercise or any type? Like, has it been shown if there are certain types that seem to be better on your gut or? Well, that's a really interesting question. And to be truthful, I don't know the science. Logically, my guess would be cardiovascular exercise. Kind of sweat things out too. And yes, that would be my guess, but I can't say yeah. it's scientifically based. But anything that gets you moving, right? Anything. Yeah. Find what you love to do and that will keep you doing it versus I have to. I'm going to, I'm going to share something with everyone. So I loved Carla that when we first were getting to know each other, one of your favorite movements was dance. Oh yes. And I always remember that, but that, that just popped in my head when I was thinking about just do whatever you can, that's going to make you move. And I know for you, that was a big part of your exercise regimen. Yeah, still is. It's my lifesaver four to five times a week. Yeah. Because I just wasn't a, a gym rat kind of person. Weights were never my real love. I mean, resistance training is so important, but that's the key, right? I'm sure you, you know how often people are not compliant with movement on a regular basis. So it has to be what they like, but yeah, I still love that. Thanks. <laughs> so my other top suggestions, um, and this one may seem a bit off, but if you are struggling, really reach out to a practitioner, a nutritionist, functional medicine, integrative medicine, nutrition coach who is well-versed in working with patients and understanding the ramifications of it and the treatment of it. Because you're gonna, you could poke at it forever and not get there. So um, it really, I think, requires someone that can help you and give you a really good protocol and journey. And then lastly, I always love to say more fiber, more water. Yes, 100%. And those two in combination, right? Don't increase your fiber and not your water because you will be one constipated person and not be too happy and could again, you know, have those feelings of bloat. And um, so, yeah, make sure you increase those together. Um, Well, Carla, this has been awesome. I mean, I always just love getting the chance to talk with you. Um, We do have 
three more questions for you. We like to end each episode with a little rapid fire. So your first answer that pops in your head, feel free to elaborate. Um, but first thing that comes to mind. So what is your favorite de-stressing practice or tool? Exercise. Boom. (laughs) For me, it is dance personally. And for clients, it's exercise always. Love it. Okay. Next one, coffee or tea? Coffee. And how do you take your coffee? I do drink it black. uh, And I like to press, I like press coffee. And we Uh, do like a French press. Yes. Yeah. That's how we drink it too. I will say I can only drink decaf now. I'm like too much of a nut job on regular caffeine, but (laughs) yeah, I'm a cup per day. The funny thing is I didn't start drinking coffee until I was 45. I never liked it. And suddenly I tasted someone else's. I went, (laughs) I mean, there's definitely scientific basis to a small amount every day. Not. Yeah. Oh, that, that is, that is funny though, that you started so late. Um, okay. This is my favorite question. Favorite home cooked meal. Oh, wow. Um, I love flavors from India. So I would say like a chicken with sauteed or roasted vegetables and brown rice. That's like my all-time fave. Oh my gosh. That sounds just so good and warming right now. We actually did, Carla, just have a tikka masala the other night. Um, we, you know, we cheat a little, we love, um, Saffron road has these little sauce packets and their tikka masala sauce and the ingredients are great, but, Oh, I'm right there with you. And I'm hoping we actually still have leftovers in the fridge because that may be my lunch. Um, but thank you again. (laughs) Yeah. So good. But thank you again so much, Carla. If anyone has any questions for Carla about today's podcast, just make sure to leave them in the comments below and I will get them to her and we will get your questions answered. Um, but like I said, Carla, I can't thank you enough for being on today. It was all my pleasure, Kate. This was was such a fun but really important conversation. So thank you for bringing it forward. Based on all the gut-loving information Carla brought us, this week's actionable step is to start paying attention to what your gut is telling you. Is it happy after you eat? Do you feel discomfort at times? Is your stool regular? If you find that anything seems out of balance, I urge you to talk to your doctor or seek out an RD or certified nutritionist to help get your gut back in balance to avoid any other ailments down the road and so you can reap the benefits of what a healthy gut can provide you with. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can watch every episode of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. You can follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate and see me share a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, we want to hear from you. Please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.